the, the truth is, as you say, that all these accolades, the Nobel Prize and the hundred other, they slightly weigh you down. I think this is also the, the price to pay. It's maybe a price that would be that the scientific part of my personality will <laughs> be impacted. But in, in another way, it is so important to be also uh, yeah, a voice for science, a voice for encouraging younger people to start science and continue in science. I suppose the key difference between an interview and a conversation is that with a conversation you never know where things are going to go. And so it turned out with this candid and unexpectedly introspective conversation with Emmanuel Charpentier, an encore presentation from season two. The only thing I can say is that Chris Barr is really me as a scientist. This is Nobel Prize Conversations, and you just heard 2020 chemistry laureate Emmanuel Charpentier. I could perform this type of research because I could focus on the science. For those who would like to see me continuing to do science, <laughs> I would have to be in, uh, in, in the mindset I was uh, 10 years ago. <laughs> Explorer. Entrepreneur. Emmanuelle Charpentier reflects on her journey to the Nobel Prize and how recognition has recently been a distraction from the one constant in her career, science. Together with Jennifer Doudna, she was awarded the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for discovering key aspects of a naturally occurring defence mechanism in bacteria called CRISPR-Cas9 and developing it into a gene editing tool the much-talked-about genetic scissors that are now revolutionising life sciences. Nobel Prize Conversations is produced with the support of our Nobel International Partners, 3M, ABB, Ericsson and Scania. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. So let's hear how success can pull you away from the very thing that defines you. Let's put it that way. Everything a Nobel Prize awardee says or every activity a Nobel Prize awardee is uh, involved in takes, you know, more, let's say, importance when one is... Uh, a Nobel laureate. <laughs> People pay attention. It's a powerful instrument to have in one's hands. And so it gives, yes, it, it expands the possibilities for influence and acting as a role model, giving advice, even directing things. So you seem to be remarkably talented at balancing activities, but it's an extra, it's an extra group of things that you're going to have to uh, accommodate. Does it fill you with any worry that this will take a an extra portion of your time, or do you just see it as a just a, a kind of a boon to what you're trying to do? Let's put it that way. The last six years have been very, very busy <laughs> because, as a matter of fact, I received more than I mean, nearly nearly 100 distinctions around. 
So this has taken most of my time, I will say, yet I was able to, um, yeah, to set up two departments and one institute. Uh, the, frankly speaking, the issue is for me is that uh, <laughs> it, it has eaten quite much my life. Um, so not, not only uh, the, the, the time it takes to, uh, to, to involve oneself in, uh, in the more, um, the, the public light and, uh, everything that goes around, um, accepting recognitions, but, um, it, it's also having established, uh, you know, these departments and this institute, the fact that I'm still uh, confronted to political issues that do not let's say, take some of my time. I have not been really present for my uh, scientific uh, members of my uh, lab. I was hoping to have a little bit more time. Um, <laughs> I think I will have even less time. And the only thing I can say is that Chris Parr is really me as a scientist. I mean, I'm, uh, I was a you know, scientist involved. Uh, the, from my lab, there was a, a very young master student and very young PhD student involved. Uh, a postdoc at some point who had identified uh, this tracer RNA. So this was really research done um, within four years of time. Then after my collaborator joined, but the critical years where we understood everything was actually a year of time around 2009 and 2010. And the thing is that, um, yeah, I could perform this type of research because I could focus on the science, um, as a matter of fact. So, um, <laughs> so, so this, um, this is a bit the situation I have to deal with, meaning that for those who would like to see me continuing, continuing to do science, <laughs> I would have to be in, uh, in, in the mindset I was uh, 10 years ago, <laughs> which is nearly impossible now. And plus, I don't have the time to even, uh, you know, provide the support the, the people of my lab need. So, uh, so that, that is a bit the issue that I face. Isn't it interesting? Because I, I mean, one doesn't know the motivation completely, but I, I think the understanding is that Alfred Nobel, in setting up the prize, thought that by giving money to brilliant young people, brilliant people, he could ensure that they just could focus on doing their research. You know, it gave them the freedom to get on with it. But now the, the truth is, as you say, that all these accolades, the Nobel Prize and all and the hundred other, um, they, they're lovely, but they, they slightly weigh, one, weigh you down and, and take you away from it. So it's, 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 it's perverse in a funny way. You know, the, f the first, there was a prize that I received in Vienna in 2009 for my work on regulatory RNAs in Streptococcus pyogenes. Then the second prize was uh, the Eric Fertström Prize in Sweden. And this was for actually 
the Nature paper, so the the, the Nobel Prize awards actually the work that is a Nature paper and a Science paper, and and <laughs> this was a Nature paper. Then the the third prize was the Göran Gustafsson Prize in Sweden. And this was awarding <laughs> the Nature paper and the Science paper. And I, when I received the news that I was awarded the Gerhard Gustafsson Prize, this was in 2013, I really saw clearly that this would be the start on an, of an avalanche of prices. And then I thought a lot of Jean-Paul Sartre, <laughs> the French philosopher, who refused to accept the Nobel Prize for various reasons, but um, for what I read, one of the reasons was that he did not really agree to award, um, you know, people during their lifetime. He thought that the awards should be given when they have passed away, because otherwise it would transform people into institutions. And I, I really saw this, and I discussed actually with colleagues, and I said, okay, you know what, I mean, you know me, you know how I am, etc., should I start? Because if I start to accept, uh, I, I do know it's going to be an avalanche. I mean, I had this, uh, this, this for, for me, it was clear. And then my some of my colleagues told me, um, yeah, but you know, I mean, you know, you, 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 you cannot, uh, you have to accept the prizes because otherwise, you know, other people will take the credit of what you did. And first of all, and second of all, you have to be a voice for microbiology and fundamental research. And don't worry, you will be able to manage everything. Uh, and uh, yes, indeed, it's going to be, <laughs> you know, maybe, um, you know, life changing. But, uh, you know, this you, you have to do so. So then I was like, OK, fine, I do so. <laughs> but I knew that. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, it's also, I have to say, it's also a chance in a way, maybe one could see it as a, as a unique opportunity, as a chance, as a unique opportunity to be in a position where that is extremely unique, that, uh, you know, not a lot of colleagues uh, are because I'm, you know, still relatively young in my career. So I think this is also... The, the price to pay is maybe a price that will be that me as a scientist, uh, my, let's say the scientific part of my personality will, will, will uh, you know, will um, be impacted. But in, in another way, it is so important in our days to, to, to be also uh, a voice for making sure that... Um, that um, yeah, a voice for science, a voice for encouraging um, young kids and younger people to start science and continue in science. It's also um, Chris Parkas, at least, is a perfect example to convince or remind uh, politicians and uh, uh, other influential um, personalities that. Uh, Everything is about science. CRISPR-Cas9, the system Charpentier explored, allows scientists to make quick and precise edits to DNA. Within just a few years of publication, new research began applying the technique in diverse fields, from designing drought-resistant crops to creating therapies against cancer. 
But not every discovery's significance is recognised so quickly. So one thing that worries Emmanuel Charpentier is how to keep young talents engaged with academic science. The world has become extremely technologic. So CRISPR takes also more of its, of its sense because it's a technology that comes at the right time. It would have been discovered 25 years ago, maybe it would not have had such an impact because it, it was really discovered at the time where you could see uh, large developments and large advancements of, of technologies around high throughput sequencing of genomes, high throughput screenings, uh, you know, imaging technologies, uh, technologies for delivery. Uh, technologies to culture cells and organisms that have extremely um, developed over the last 10, 15 years. And that, that you know, is the reason also why CRISPR could be shown to be successful because all of a sudden, you know, with all the advancements of the other technologies, CRISPR was making sense and all those technologies could be even further developed for the applications of CRISPR. So, it's, um, and I think it's most likely also, which in a way it's interesting, in another way maybe a little bit um, roaring for me because it's a word very much on the technology that young people tend to be extremely exciting about technologies and not, and let's say, I think our role for the future will be to make sure that we can still keep young scientists in the field of academic research that is, you know, a, a different type of research than applying technologies or developing technologies, but that is really starting from, you know, from something not clear, not knowing where we go and where I hope that the current, the upcoming education of, you know, pupils, etc., and uh, will be adapted and set to make sure that we can still uh, attract uh, young people in, in the field of academy where, you know, things are not going fast and it's maybe not as fancy. It's hard work, long work. Uh, commitment, persistence, resilience. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about that for a while because, I mean, when 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 scientists talk about doing science, especially when laureates talk about doing science, they emphasise all the nice things about it—the kind of fascination, the joy of playing with what you love—and you know that it's, it doesn't feel like work; it feels like um, just just a hobby because it's so enjoyable and you're so interested. But and that's all the nice side, but. There also needs to be a, a real kind of dedication to and drive to to keep yourself going as a scientist, doesn't there? I mean, if you, if you talk about athletes or you talk about, I don't know, people are leaders in business, you talk about their drive. You tend not to talk about a scientist drive, but presumably it's a very important part of it. No, no, surely it's a very important part of it and... Um... And it's interesting what you said because if you know if I if I refer to me and and my colleagues um, and 
let's put it that way, our concerns of, of the upcoming generation with regard to will we be able to attract them to academic research and will we be able to be uh, enough attractive to keep them to do uh, you know, academic work. It, it, it's because we know that, uh, yeah, you can have the drawing, but you have nevertheless to, to, you know, specifically nowadays, maybe more in the last, uh, you know, 10, 20 years, because we have, the, the system has evolved into promoting more independent careers very early on, this goes with um, with a lot of uncertainties career-wise and most likely having to fight more because there are maybe less politics around than, than before, at least. Uh, it, it's very political, but what I want to say is that it's, 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 maybe it's different than, than 30 years ago. And I think the, you know, the students and the postdocs, they see it. They are not specifically <laughs> enthusiastic to see that having a career in science, it's not only being a scientist and, and it's, it's also dealing with, um, with politics. But if we look at the young people and we often refer to the fact that uh, you know, we, we look at those who have a drive, actually, because the drive will cover up <laughs> the fact that we can deal with the rest. Uh, if one does not have... The, the drive means... Uh, means uh, actually, for me, the drive is, is, is an important word because I don't like so much the passion. I mean, <laughs> um, I think it's... The, the drive means as well that a scientist... Um, like an athlete, as you said, an athlete lives her or his sport. A scientist lives her or his science. And this is mainly linked to the, to the drive that one cannot specifically explain, but that it's a mixture of, of, you know, of obsession, I would say, <laughs> in a way, of, uh, of obsession, passion, and also a sense of this, this is my mission in a way. This is, I mean, an athlete in a way, you know, is like, this is obsessed with the fact that, you know, this is, you know, this is what, this is the sport I do. This is, this is, this is me and I have to win, etc. And there is a little bit of this for sure, uh, being, uh, being a scientist. In your own career, you seem to have been very good at deciding to move on you 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 moved you did these multiple postdocs in the states you you you've moved between institutes a lot clearly you make decisions to that you need to know this you need to learn this you need to experience this it's it's not easy to constantly change yourself to constantly sort of move away from where you're comfortable to where to some new place where it might or might not work but it's it's very apparent that you've sort of kept going in a way that um, requires an awful lot of energy and, as you say, a kind of obsessive drive, I would have said. And um, I think that's it's obviously been an extremely successful way of um, getting to grips with the basic science. 
do you do you does that does that characterize you the way I just yes, described? Yes, but you know, um, actually, initially, I was I was you know a typical French student of uh, the nineties. Um, actually, thinking that uh, um, you know I would need security. Um, when I went to the U.S., it was a big step for me, yet I think uh, I was described when I was 10, 11 years old as someone who, who would be adventurous. And when I was told this by my aunt, um, I could not un understand what she was meaning. I think I understood it years, years, years later. And maybe actually I ended up um, realizing that I was... Yeah, that being adventurous was maybe me. But I, I still don't define myself as adventurous because maybe people from outside could say, okay, it's, it's moved a lot, it's quite adventurous. But for me, it's really, um, how do you say? For me, adventurous is really leaving everything you have behind and doing something completely new. Uh, my stability is my science. My stability is the fact that you know, I always had uh, my laptop in front of me, <laughs> the same, you know, overline, overall line of research. Um, I was moving from one institution to another institution. I could look in the labs. They look, they look the same, more or less. The pipettes are the same, <laughs> you know. So my environment is actually very stable. It's, it's, it's just that... Um, it's just that... Uh, uh, I, I, you know, I transfer my little environment from one country to another one and from one institution to another one. Recreating, recreating my environment maybe as a way to, to recreate or restart something because, um, I mean, someone told me recently that, um, that maybe or so I, I'm, I'm, I'm never satisfied. So, but as a matter of fact, I'm quite perfectionist. So this, I know this, even though I learned to not be perfectionist with everything that has happened to me, which requires to be multitask as well and, and not do, you know, do something the way they come. But I'm certainly, um, and, and I think, but for me, it, it's not being a perfect, for me, being a scientist is about having a sense of methodology, organization, a structure, that one has to have, and then beside the structure, uh, creating um, a kind of environment that allows creativity. And for me, this environment is to always to bring myself, because at the point, my science is my structure. If I was totally adventurous and, and, and very, um, how do you say, disruptive, I, I, will, I will not be a scientist. Maybe one day I will not be a scientist, but uh, my way of, uh, of going ahead was because, yeah, I, I could find my creativity by constantly reinventing myself. Maybe because I'm not satisfied with myself, so I was saying, no, you're not good. If you go here, you will be better. <laughs> and also because I have to say that I realized at some point very 
Actually, when I arrived in the US, maybe this was a starting point. I arrived at the Rockefeller University in the laboratory of Ilan Tuomanen, my first postdoc lab. I arrived my, with my two luggages arriving from JFK. I went directly in her office and she told me, Emmanuel, I have a good news for you. We are moving to Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> and I think since this starting point, I had this kind of, uh, I had created for myself uh, the fact that I needed to be efficient where I was. And as a matter of fact, each time I started somewhere very fast, I knew that I would be leaving faster than expected. And I was always on the side thinking of where, what would be my next step. And for sure, I took opportunities. I would not think that I would have had, but this is the, the way it works. And it's also the fact that I can feel, or maybe, I don't know, maybe it's also a part of my personality. I, um, I like to be independent. I like to be free and the systems like to, let's say, um, in a way format to a certain extent. <laughs> Uh, people or they, you know, you have to, to stick to a system. Yeah, you need a rigor. Yes, this, this idea of you as an adventurer, it's, it does sound a bit abandoned. Maybe explorer is better because an explorer needs method. An explorer needs a kind of process, but they apply themselves to different things, to different scenarios, and that seems or different You know, different what I like as well is that, you know, that the entrepreneurial world, they call themselves entrepreneurs. And they will tell academic scientists, but you're not an entrepreneur. And this is here that I disagree because in our days, uh, young scientific leaders have to be entrepreneurs because very fast they, you know, they have to switch from the situation where they are postdoc and they are pampered to the situation where all of a sudden they are responsible for everything. And they have to make their own science, their own lab, and they are entrepreneurs. And I think explore, explorer mixed with entrepreneur, I think it's not what, uh, what is maybe uh, yeah, the, the right uh, definitions of what is a scientist in our days, actually, or a successful scientist in our days. That, that slogan, um, entrepreneurial exploring or something like that, could perhaps attract a whole new cohort of people into science. I think so. It's exactly the point. If you compare to the US, you realise that the way the education goes, I believe, well, I'm not an expert, huh, but I believe of, of, uh, the of, of the education in the US and, and uh, you know, there may be also, uh, you know, good and, and bad aspects like, like uh, ed education elsewhere. But it is true that I think the entrepreneurial uh, spirit is, is, let's say, more considered or, or maybe more highlighted uh, and I think it's most likely what the young people in nowadays refer themselves more to. They want to be more their own entrepreneur. And I think it is important to indeed uh, to recreate maybe uh, an interest in, into science by showing that a scientist in nowadays is actually a person who will be an entrepreneur 
and as the chance, because this is actually what I said also to the young people, I mean, being a scientist in our days, if, if one likes to communicate the science, if one likes to lead, to work with people, to be in an international environment, etc., this is really what, what science can bring. And I think it's not so clear for the young kids uh, before university and at the university what really being a scientist is. And if they knew, I'm sure it would be more attractive for them. The development of CRISPR-Cas9 as a system that could be put to use in the lab was the result of a successful collaboration between the 2020 chemistry co-laureates Emmanuel Charpentier and American biochemist Jennifer Doudner. But if not for Charpentier's knack for seizing just the right opportunities, the two might never have had the chance to work together. They crossed paths at a conference in 2011 for what turned out to be the scientific equivalent of a speed date. And then I said, OK, I'm sure that her, she would not have problem of manpower <laughs> because she has enough funds in her lab and she had, uh, you know, Excuse enough expertise me. that in principle, I, uh, I just, uh, you know, thought it would be, uh, you know, interesting at least to, to ask her. And I think, you know, it's, it's something that has to happen fast because a conference does not last for days. And, you know, you have different meetings, very short time to meet. And actually, very fast, we realized actually it could work out. But again, as she would say, it would not have worked out if, our, if my student or postdoc would not have also been able to work together in a friendly and collegial and cooperative manner. This was really essential as well. Because you can have two PIs getting along, but I mean, are getting along, let's say, deciding to, to collaborate. And, you know, for her and me, I think we have a certain sense of quality of science. We are quite logical. So, you know, it, it was uh, not, uh, you know, confrontation of the way we would proceed because we had, I think, the same kind of methodology. But, um, yeah, again, if the people of our labs would not have been able to cooperate, you know, the, co the collaboration will not have uh, gone very fast. I want to say this because she will say it as well. And again, it's about also young scientists mm. behind. <laughs> that's, the th that's the theme of the conversation for sure. OK, uh, thank you very much indeed. And I'm sorry that you can't come to lovely white Sweden in December, but we look forward to welcoming you soon. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. OK, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've just heard Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith by Filt Hinterland for Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Sally Henriksen, and I'm Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. This episode is from season two of the show. You can find previous seasons and conversations on ACAST or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.